It's been a while since you put me on the shelf. I know you've been distracted by somebody else. It's been a while, but that's all right, you see. And I'll be right here waiting when you want to play again with me. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Cult of the Old. I'm Ian McAllister and as ever I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts Nate Owens and Matt Thrower. How are you doing gents? We're doing great Ian. Well I am. I assume Matt is. I don't actually know. I'm... I'm doing the back to school stuff it's the end of the summer properly you know with two kids uh, so we've been sending them back to school one week college the next week and it's it's all very much oh it's early mornings oh it's it's way days getting shorter the rain is falling but hey you know changing seasons is fun halloween's coming up yeah absolutely my, my wife loves the autumn and the change in leaves and color it all looks very nice yeah, it's, it's nice and sunny up here for our latest episode. And each episode of Cult of the Old, I and my fellow hosts are going to dive into the tabletop gaming past. We're going to turn back the release schedule at least 10 years to look at games that were setting tables ablaze in the dim and distant past of a whole decade ago. Over the course of this season, the games we're going to cover will still be available to play, either because they have become evergreen titles, that is, they're always available at retail, or they are accessible through illegal digital means like Board Game Arena. In today's episode, we're looking at a game that couldn't be more apt for the times we were living through. A game that introduced the idea of working together to beat the game, rather than working against each other to come out on top, and made a household name of its designer. We are, of course, talking about Pandemic. So, who wants to give me a one-minute breakdown for Pandemic? I think the sickness falls to me for this one. Excellent. Your one minute starts now. So Pandemic is a cooperative game uh, where you and your fellows each take a specialist role and try and rid the world of a bevy of horrible diseases. Uh, on your turn, you have a number of actions that you can use to do things like move around the world from point to point location, um, get rid of disease cubes and pool uh, your your work, your cards to get a cure. Um, it has a particularly impressive explosion mechanic whereby each turn a card is drawn out of the deck, uh, which represents a city. And if that city, your cubes are then added to that city. Uh, disease cubes and then if the you get more than three disease cubes in the city they instead infect all the neighboring cities and if any of those have more than three they infect the neighboring cities and then all the cards go back on top of the deck so there's a really high chance that those hot spots will get activated once again the next time round. the idea is you've got to collect uh, cards yourself in your hand to get these cures and get as all five of them done no look i can't do it under that kind of pressure look i've got <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Under oh, you said five diseases. There's only four. I would have done it. I would have done it. Had I got it. I'm glad you made the correction. I would have done it if I hadn't been. <laughs> I know I need it, but I absolutely would have done it in that time. I was Little so cue crazy. cards. It's so got to gotta hold them up in the background. I can't do it. Oh, that. man. <laughs> <laughs> Pandemic released in 2007-2008, was announced at Essen in 2007. Designer was Matt Leacock, and the original publisher was Z-Man Games. Not Z-Man, Z-Man. It's an American company. Artists were Josh Capel, Christian Hanish, Reggie Mullan, Chris Williams, and Tom Thiel. And despite its influence on the tabletop hobby that we're going to talk about, it's actually never scooped any of the big awards, but has been nominated several times. 
So, Jens, how did you come across Pandemic originally? I remember I played Pandemic just at the beginning of 2008. It was, it might have even, yeah, it was January of 2008. It was really early on. I remember, yeah, I, we, we, it was at a game store and we, we played it at least one time. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is, because it wasn't the first cooperative game I'd played. And we're going to talk about this. It didn't, it wasn't the first game to do that trick, but it was the first one to do it in a way that was really, it's an extremely polished game, whatever else we can say about it. And it, it just really felt like, oh, this is really approachable or it's it feels replicatable uh it's the kind of game that inspires people to like oh i wonder if i could do something like this and it's got a couple of neat mechanical tricks uh as i thought at the time and it it really for about a good i would say 18 months starting around then until the middle of 2009 maybe even through that year it really was just a mainstay, just a real workhorse at our game nights. Uh, I had my own copy, but I had several friends who did too. And actually, it it's one of those. It was one of those few games at that time that it was really worth it to have multiple copies in circulation because it just meant that ev- that you always had a shot at playing it every night. So I I, I think that was kind of it, it burned real hot for about a about eighteen months or so for me. Before yourself, Matt. I actually didn't play Pandemic on a board for some years. I don't know when I first played it on a board. The, the first time I actually played Pandemic was on an iPad um, because given its popularity in the wave of tabletop adaptations that made their way onto the, the nice touchy glass screen of the iPad, it was obviously a top contender. came out in about 2010, and I think I reviewed it. And the reason I had avoided it uh, is because I had been burned, essentially, by a number of the games that preceded Pandemic and came after it. I bounced very hard off Nizia's Lord of the Rings, and I, I thought it was a very tiresome and boring game. And in after Pandemic, obviously, its success led to a lot of people quickly releasing a number of other cooperative games uh, and a lot of them felt rushed to market uh, things like red november witch of salem neither of uh, games i'd particularly blame anyone for not having come across or, or heard about but they were not good and they just cemented that idea in my head that cooperative games are not good and so yeah i didn't play pandemic for a long time eventually um, it, it made its way into my local gaming group like my gaming group of friends, and I played it a good few times then. So, so I did eventually play it on the board, but I was not among the the early rush of people who uh, who got into this. I think I picked it up relatively early in its life. I mean, I, I had an I had a weird sort of obsession in my collection at one point that I wanted like different mechanics in the collection because I was sort of early days of thinking about criticism and that kind of thing. I wanted like examples of of those mechanics in my collection. So I think I picked up Pandemic relatively early in its lifespan and some of the expansions shortly after they came out as well. And it was it was okay, it did okay in my group, but I did, I did eventually move on and moved on to other cooperative games, which we'll no doubt come to talk about. We mentioned, I think a couple of us mentioned there are different influences that we think are present in Pandemic. Matt, you mentioned Knizia's Lord of the Rings game there, and I think Nate thinks that's one of the influences on, on that particular game. I've never played it myself. So can you tell me tell me why you think that was an influence on, on Pandemic particularly? Just the corporate element or is there more? I have to jut in there and just say it's Leacock himself, the designer, confirmed it as a major influence on ah, Pandemic. Okay. Um, so he has cool. said as much in interviews. 
Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, I really didn't dig Lord of the Rings, so I'd be very interested to hear if, you know, if Nate, if you've got any insight into how more directly you might see those influences in Pandemic. I really like Lord of the Rings, actually. That would be a really interesting episode of Cult of the Old because I <laughs> I find the game, yeah. And I and I actually, when I was, when we were, you know, comparing notes before we went into this, I, I know how you feel about Lord of the Rings, Matt. <laughs> and I, I think in terms, it's not, again, Lord of the Rings was not the first hobby game to do cooperative play. There's the original Arkham Horror from the 80s that was published by Chaosium. And, you know, that's just one example. However, I think it's fair to say that Lord of the Rings is probably the first example in like the board game geek era of a really, you know, Lord of the Rings is a really fascinating game for a couple reasons. One is that it's an incredibly unconventional adaptation of its source material. Like I say, it's one I like, but it's also one, especially it's, it's got a lot of abstraction to it. And it's just the rhythm of the game is kind of is really unique. There hasn't been there haven't been many games that have that have done cooperative play like Lord of the Rings has. But I think there's a couple of things that you can say, yeah, I see this in pandemic. One is there's the different powers of the hobbits in Lord of the Rings. You play as uh, the hobbits taking the uh, the ring to Mordor and you're going to destroy it. And each hobbit has their own little little power that they get it's not it's not a big thing but it has that mm-hmm. I, I i think another thing that really comes to mind are the there's the cards in pandemic that you can play them out of turn and i don't forget i don't remember what like the special actions or something like the airlift and stuff like that yeah and there's the gandalf cards in lord of the rings which serve the same function now there's some difference mechanically in lord of the rings the gandalf cards actually you have a resource you accumulate that you need to spend to use those cards, which is a kind of an additional pressure in that game. But I think those are the two spots that I, I, I see the most influence is the individual player powers and those, those cards that you can kind of use to save your skin uh, when you're in a tight, a tight place. Yeah, sounds like it. Yourself, Matt, you think uh, in, in the show notes, you used to put down real world pandemics as, as an influence on the game. I mean, I guess they were. Yeah, I mean, again, this this is just something that I dug up doing a bit of research for this this show. Leacock said he was, you know, really quite fascinated or or possibly horrified by SARS as swept the world. I think that was 2003. And so, you know, you could view Pandemic through that lens. It it inspired him to create this idea of the the, the chain reactions, I think, in the game where the pandemic just spreads and spreads and spreads. So you could look at it almost as a warning system, an early warning sign, um, because people were bubbling away, uh, microbiologists, doctors, that something was going to hit us sooner or later in terms of the pandemic. Um, And obviously it did uh, some years after Pandemic, after... (laughs) The pandemic board game came out, you know, and so you you could view it as as an early warning system. But I think it's worth reflecting for a moment, actually, that we've talked about. You're right, absolutely, about Lord of the Rings being the first cooperative game in the in the Euro game hobby space, if you like. But cooperative games are actually quite old. They're not a novel idea, which is quite interesting to me. They just bubbled along as a very niche subgenre, if you like, for years and years and years uh, until pandemic came along and, and lit a fire under the whole thing. So we, I actually, it wasn't until we came to do this episode that I realised that Arkham Horror 2nd Edition 
came out before pandemic. I thought it actually, yeah, in my right. head, it came out after pandemic. Uh, and it's because I have just come to see pandemic as the root of all cooperative games. And it's, it's, it's really funny how it's changed everyone's perception in the hobby of cooperative games that it is this great monolith this great this is the father of cooperative games because its influence was so huge and so profound but actually it's not um, and that's not to take anything away from pandemic at all i just think it's it's a reality check just to remind people um you know arkham horror first edition god only knows that's back in the 80s 90s wasn't it you know um yeah. the cooperating rather than competing is not a new idea it's just that pandemic made it into something special and monolithic. Arkham Horror 2nd Edition is actually a really good touchstone too because that does have that network of like that, it's like this node-based movement. And then there's like spots, like hot spots. Oh, you need to, in that game, you need to close the gate because there's all these eldritch monsters pouring out of it. And you need to manage the monsters and manage the gates closing and manage other stuff that's happening. It's a much more complex, epic experience, but the structure is that again i don't know if that was something matt leacock was looking at when he designed this but i i know that in the process for designing pandemic the the network of cities was a big starting point for him and so you can see that there's there's some common dna there with how kevin wilson and richard lanius approached the second edition of arkham horror yeah for sure i mean i've played a bit of the second edition of arkham horror and it's a bit of a complicated beast of a game it's it's very fiddly but yeah, it's definitely got that sort of hotspot thing, having to manage those sort of outbursts of monsters and that kind of thing. I I played quite I've probably played quite a bit of Eldritch Horror, which was the later game, sort of inspired by. I think that's actually a better game personally. But yeah, it's a, a sort of later version of that kind of thing, and it's got that world map with like going around and doing different bits and pieces across the world, yeah. much like Pandemic has. I mean, so there's been various editions of Pandemic over the years. Uh, obviously, the original was 2007, 2008, a reprint with new artwork in 2012. Numerous international versions. I mean, Z-Man Games isn't the only publisher. As with a lot of the games we're talking about, they will have various international publishers across the world. Uh, there were two main expansions for Pandemic, On the Brink and In the Lab, plus various other little mini-expansions given away at cons and that kind of thing as well. And then there's been a variety of other sort of Pandemic-influenced games. I suppose the most recent and most well-known are the legacy versions of, of Pandemic with Volume 1 coming out in 2015, and then various other sort of pandemic-inspired games, like a Cthulhu one called Reign of Cthulhu, one based in Rome called Fall of Rome. There's a, been a World of Warcraft one in not too distant past as well. I'm not going to touch on the Star Wars one, because if it doesn't happen, I'll totally forget to take it out of this cast. <laughs> It will happen. It's been, it's been confirmed. It's been confirmed. I've, I've, I've had a PR about it. This, this isn't. This isn't. It's going to be announced in like a week's time. This is not a um, uh, pie in the sky stuff. There's also a game that I, I didn't even put this in the notes, but I remembered it today while we were getting ready for this, and that's Defenders of the Realm, which is uh, Madam Matt. If you, I don't know if you remember this game at all, but it was this kind of fantasy version of Pandemic, and it was not Matt Leacock wasn't involved in that. It was designed by Richard Launius. But it was a big, like, fantasy full of plastic dudes kind of game. And it was almost the same structure, just with a little more diciness and a little less deck management. And it was, you know, it was a medium hit in that first rush of games that came out just right after Pandemic. And I think it's mostly been forgotten now, which, as I recall, I actually remember kind of digging it back in, like, 2010 or 2011, whenever I played it. But it's been it's been left behind to the to the dustbin of board game geek these days. 
The name definitely rings a bell. I, I remember the name. Sure, I've, I've never played it myself, but yeah, the name definitely rings a bell. It's a it's a really eighties looking game. Like it's got Larry yeah. Elmore artwork. It looks like it belongs on the side of someone's van. The, the plastic miniatures look straight out of Hero Quest or something like. Oh that. yeah, yeah, and the the board looks yeah the board has a very Avalon Hill kind of sheen to it. Mm. It's it's pretty cool though. So anyone who's listening to this, if you see see a copy of it, like at a you know bgg con flea market or something it's it's worth a look have you gents played any of the other versions of pandemic or merely just or mostly just the core one with some expansions maybe the one i've played most of is actually fall of rome pandemic or fall of rome i've, I've played it more than the original i like it more than the original um okay uh, for, for reasons that we we may come back to i like the dice basically is a bit is a big part of it i think the dice really really add an element uh, that's missing from the original pandemic there's a couple of things I wanted to say about the different editions of Pandemic. First of all is the components, because that reprint replaced little wooden cubes with uh, little plastic cubes. And wooden cubes are like literally ten a penny when it comes to board games. But those plastic cubes, I think it's the first time I've ever seen plastic cubes, and I really like them. Those little translucent cubes, um, they're nice to handle, they're smooth to handle, and they look horribly disease-ridden. It looks yeah. like something you would find <laughs> in a in a petri dish or or in a hospital. I really like those. Sure. Um, I, and I remember one, one of the expansions came with little petri dish like holders for them. Yeah, mm. well. they had that in the yeah. in the on the brink expansion. Had yeah, that. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it did. I also think it's worth mentioning in the notes when you said numerous international versions. I thought you were talking about the the, the geographical versions like Iberia. And no, I was referring to the New languages England one. There's a New England one as well, I think. I can't remember. There's loads. There's loads. But the Iberia one is worth mentioning, I think, particularly because a lot of people really like it. A lot of people who've played a lot of pandemic games have a high opinion of Iberia. I have not played it. Uh, I don't have a particularly high opinion of pandemic as a series. But, you know, I just think that's worth flagging up there. Have either of you two played Pandemic Iberia? No, I can't say. I've only really played the original. Uh, I haven't played any of the other versions. Okay. I'd, re- I'd really like to play the Legacy version at some point because it sounds kind of interesting. But I've got enough Legacy games on my plate. Yeah, I, I had the Dream, which is a group that was able to, the same four people, play the entire campaign of Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Which I, you know, I think at that point in my life, I was kind of done with Pandemic. But for whatever for whatever it's worth pandemic legacy made me care about pandemic again for you know 20 odd games which is was saying something <laughs> uh i have some other beefs with that game not not major ones but ones that we can kind of unpack later or i can unpack them now if you want mm, yeah go ahead <laughs> okay well here's my well, thing spend too long spend too long on it because we're talking okay about rather than oh I, I would never i would never so the first thing is is that in the end it is basically just pandemic uh it never really breaks the the rule structure very much but there is something genuinely wonderful about like okay we've cured a disease and now we get to uh you know write a name for the disease on our on the board and oh the black disease always has this name and you know this is a common thing now in legacy games this ability to really personalize the experience you had that's really cool and i really appreciated that i think my issue with it is the same issue i have with all campaign board games which is that a board game in a campaign form i, I say this as someone who plays a lot of role does a lot of role playing uh D games like that there's no room for emergent narrative in a game like that uh i i 
had the same basic experience that if you were to play it with your group, you would have. There's the same plot beats. Uh, the details are different. And there is a couple of little plot points in there that I wouldn't dream of spoiling them for you. But the way they un unravel is very emergent. And the way it forces you to think is really cool. But I, I, it really felt like I, this, is, this isn't fair to the designers. I would have liked something that had almost more like a branching narrative that could really have like a different outcome depending on what happened. But no, there's only ever one outcome that that game's going to go to. And as just as someone who's done a lot of role playing, I always thought that was a, that, that's not very narrative to me. That's, it just, I, I think it kind of bumps up against the limit of the medium in that sense. But it's a cool experience. If you have a group that likes Pandemic and cut, gets together regularly, definitely worth a, worth a look. Before we move on from this, I think I just want to go back and look at again at the just literally the sheer number of expansions, spin-offs, whatever, whatnot that are around pandemic. So we didn't even mention, as I said, all these geographic ones. There's a whole load of them. It's got these mass market franchise versions, World of Warcraft, Star Wars. There's a fuse reskin a fuse is a dice game where you you defusing bombs called rapid response which hasn't got you know particularly good reviews but the point i'm well, getting the one here with the plane thing wasn't it with the i'm playing dice on the plane yeah yeah um yeah. and it's just pandemic now feels like it's still just cashing in basically it's it, it almost feels like a franchise that's sold out to some extent uh, because it just trundles on and on and on. I was quite surprised to hear about that Star Wars one. It might be great fun, you know. Let's let's not shoot down the game before it before it comes out. But the the World of Warcraft one was got a fairly frosty response, I think. Um, and I, I hadn't even heard of the World of Warcraft one. Like I had no idea that existed. Yeah, yeah. There is a World of Warcraft version, and I think there's another franchise version as well, which I've now forgotten uh, that I haven't written down. But it just it feels now like a juggernaut. That's, that's past its time almost. And I don't, again, don't want to take away anything from the impact of the original game. I don't want to take anything from the legacy versions. I particularly enjoyed uh, Legacy Season Zero. I thought it was really interesting the way sort of like the, the, it was adapted away from the, the disease to a, to a Cold War theme and it worked quite well. And I like Fall of Rome, as I've said. But now, after all these years, the fact that we're still seeing spins on this title is really old now. Let's reverse the time a little bit and go back to the original release. We've talked about sort of the, the current version, how there have been so many franchise versions of it, but the pure sort of pandemic experience is still available. What was the impact of that game at the time for you, gents? I seem to remember we just played it so much. And I, <laughs> you know, it just was one of those games that it kind of, it, it pushed out a, a lot of other games at the time. And I think it wasn't, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm tipping my hand a little bit here because I I think it's a good game in the sense that it's impactful and had a lot of uh, had a lot of influence and in its way is really solid in, in a few ways. But it's also never been a game I've loved that much for me. Uh, I've had other cooperative games that I think just resonated with me more at different times. And Pandemic was never the one that I was like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. But I know for a lot of people, it really was. I, I think there's, um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think that there's, we're, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about some of our 
issues with the game, but I think the the couple of the core mechanics just really feel right thematically. And one is the way the cubes can spread. So if you get three cubes in one city, it, there's an outbreak and it sends cubes to all the neighboring cities. That is very elegant. I hate using that word because it's such a board game cliche, but that's the word for it. Like it just, it conveys thematic heft in a way that, um, it's just, yeah, you just see, you're like, oh, that's pretty neat, you know? And I think that just, there's kind of a pleasure in seeing that pan out. The other one is the way that the same cities kind of stay hot zones throughout the whole game. Now these have, there's some downsides to these mechanics that I'll talk about later, but certainly at the level of like, hey, we're, you know, it's, it's local board game night. We have people who only really want to play something 45 minutes long. Hey, this is a good option. It was just, was one of the, always one of those ones that was just always a good option. And so as a result, it just got played so much. I don't think, again, it's one of those games that didn't get an expansion right away. I feel like the first expansion, which was On the Brink, didn't come out until, now I'm looking it up, didn't come out until probably 2000, I'm saying 2009. So it was about a year later, probably about more like a year and a half by the time it actually came out. So, I mean, we sat with that game a long time before ever, ever even digging into expansion content. I just, it wasn't so much what what followed it there were a lot of you know also rands in terms of uh cooperative games but it just we just played it a bunch (laughs) yeah i mean it had obviously a really big impact on there being more cooperative games i guess it that probably attracted a different type of gamer or person who wanted to play games to it because it wasn't competitive people are looking for a more like let's work together against a thing kind of like like you do in like a role-playing game kind of i guess you sort of like work together yeah. to work your way through the story that's being presented or the situation that's being presented it had more of that sort of role-playing game kind of feel to it and and certainly i, I moved away from it relatively quickly i did have some of the expansions and, and i eventually moved on i moved on to things like sort of like arkham horror eldritch horror that kind of style of cooperative game myself and these days the arkham horror living card game is the sort of my go-to for a really good cooperative game if at a very very expensive one <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, it had a, obviously had a huge impact on the hobby in terms of cooperative games. Was, was there anything that you think that came out shortly after it that was actually worth playing? Or was it all just sort of people cashing in on the cooperative sort of trend at the time? I don't know whether or not how soon it was that this came out. And I don't know if it was actually directly related to pandemic or whether or not it was just a coincidence but the other hot title that i enjoyed more than pandemic uh, that also in 2008 was ghost stories oh uh, i remember which, ghost stories yeah, yeah ghost stories I, is a good game that's a it's a fun game is a better game than pandemic i i don't love ghost stories but but it's i played it a lot more than pandemic certainly in that era in the thing that I kind of already touched on it, really, that Pandemic did, is it, is it just, it launched this huge wave, this, this crushing tsunami of cooperative games. It's the face that launched a thousand co-op titles. And people jumped on that bandwagon, I think because it was an easy one to jump on, partly. Partly because, you know, Pandemic was popular, but also we all know as gamers, even if you've never designed a game, you know that there is a lot of time and effort that goes into designing a game, iterating it, playtesting it, getting feedback, pushing that into the game, so on and so forth, and and, and refining your, your game towards a 
um, uh, a final product. And part of that is balancing the various player positions against each other. You ha- don't need to do that in a cooperative game. You can you can test it yourself. Essentially, you are simply refining player choices against a game state. So it's much faster and easier to get something playable to market. I would suggest. I think, but that didn't stop a lot of the games that came out in the immediate wake of pandemic being pretty poor. Really, I think very, very few of them have lasted the long term. Um, It took a few more years, I think, before people really started to leverage the possibilities that that pandemic gave them to make really interesting new games. And I think it's worth also just thinking for a moment as to why pandemic hit that button. As I say, it wasn't the first cooperative game. We, it wasn't even the first popular cooperative game because Arkham Horror was, was big in the hobby back in the day. I remember that. But what pandemic was that I don't think any other cooperative game had been beforehand was family adjacent. It's not a game. I don't think that many families, you know, non gamers is going to pick off the shelf and play. It's just got a little bit too much complexity, a little bit too much sort of like um, geekiness about it, if you like. But it is absolutely a game that a gamer can grab and play with their family and show to other families um, and have them learn and pick it up and get into it. And as a parent who remembers what it was like having young children, who remembers the awful fights and sulks and tantrums you get when somebody loses, that was a godsend. Yeah, to be able to sit down and play a family, a game with your family, spend quality time face to face with other individuals in, you know, other human beings and have that taken out of the account, even with adults, for God's sakes, we all know bad losers, you know, uh, <laughs> have that have that taken out. Uh, I mean, I would argue, as I'm sure we will in time, that that you lose a lot. Uh, by taking that away but you do also gain this lovely lack of friction this lovely lack of of um of fury if you like of of anger and bitterness and despair <laughs> wow <laughs> that's just such a i like that's that's such poetry matt you put it that way i <laughs> i here's the thing a lot of people just don't like being don't like competing very much yeah and i you know and i'm I'm actually someone I I like competitive games, but I'm not a competitive person. Like I don't I, I I'm a bad competitor because I usually don't really care if I lose or not. And that allows me to play a ton of stuff that like okay, yeah, sure, I played it, we lost, great, you know. <laughs> but I I have a 10-year-old son who still he there aren't many competitive games he really enjoys very much. But if we're able to tell him no, it's it's cooperative, he just likes that better. And it is, you know, it's a totally different kind of interaction. And especially in 2008, it felt really different from the kind of interaction that everyone had, you know, for the most part been enjoying. Lord of the Rings and Arkham Horror both had legs. Like they had a, a good following. They had a lot of expansions that came after them and were really well received. But those are both in their way. Like Arkham Horror is a very complex game just in terms of rules weight, not so much in terms of strategy. You know, once you're in it, it's kind of like, okay, this is flowing. And Lord of the Rings isn't nearly that complex, but it's a weird game. It has a strange rhythm to it. It doesn't, if you've played a lot of other hobby games that might not help you with Lord of the Rings, with learning that game. And, and, and so Pandemic was the first one that was just, yeah, everyone's able to play it. And for a lot of people, it was the first time they'd ever thought of like, hadn't even considered a game where you're playing with each other against the game. 
Do you think like we saw with Wingspan and not too distant past that sort of opened up the hobby to new people because of its theme and uh, attracted them to the hobby because of seeing that Pandemic did a similar kind of thing? It was a very understandable theme. It obviously, it, it quickly got into like more general stores rather than just game stores. You saw it on the shelves of supermarkets and that kind of thing, I remember, and still do to this day. So do you think it sort of attracted, opened up the hobby to more people because that it it's cooperative, it's an understandable theme, it's it's easy to grasp kind of what you're meant to be doing without really having to know how you're doing it? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, if I can say this for Matt Leacock, I I I applaud his ability to see to see to a theme to a theme that just hadn't been done yet that hadn't been flogged to death and that is is reflected mechanically in the game and that's yeah it's not you know it's not dragons or pleasing the lord or you know some something with nice you know, space or yeah 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 it's not it's not one of those things you know you're not going to feel embarrassed to, you know here's the thing i remember i've read probably three or four articles about people who use pandemic as like a team building exercise at work yeah. which to me, like I can think of other cooperative games that I think would be more telling in a team building environment, <laughs> but they're all super geeky games. Like <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, just wheel this thing into the office like, oh, hey, here's this Dungeons and Dragons adventure series game. Those are great games, great cooperative games. But I can't I can't take that to like, a, a, you know, with my work, my work friends, you know, pandemic, though. Hey, this especially now everyone can yeah. relate to it now. Yeah, especially I th- I, if I, I recall correctly t- talking about it on the Brainwaves podcast and the news podcast to do because they were they had to delay or they thought about delaying one of the expansions that was coming out just as the pandemic hit, but they had it produced. So they just had a bunch of stock in the warehouse and were like, look, we're putting this out. We understand that's <laughs> controversial, but we've got this thing and we need to make money. Maybe it could be cathartic though, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah. I think we forget in the hobby even now, just how much of a massive turnoff nerdy themes are for most people. Even in an age when sure. it, it's not fair, because we live in an age now where people sit and will watch Dance of Dragons and Game of Thrones or whatever, or the the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series on TV and lap it all up. But with the games, it's still an absolute no do. It's like no, no. What is all this this nerdy rubbish? What is all this this warfare and? pandemic really just cut across that if you look at games that have cut across the hobby market into the mass market they all have very widely appealing themes that don't go into that kind of nerdy typical fantasy sci-fi stuff that we eat up for breakfast you know ticket rides trains and uh, pandemic is obviously diseases and wingspan is birds and they're all way way away from all that all that that genre stuff um, and the other thing that pandemic does i think which is which is kind of interesting is that even if you go back to uh, a cooperative game like arkham horror i think i'm right in saying the majority of the characters in arkham horror are probably male i don't know um the second edition yeah. yes i think is. so i think so um, i think which of the half dozen expansions you're looking at yeah and Another thing I think that we underestimate, especially as as white men, is how appealing it is for people to see themselves represented in a game, how important that is. For sure. If you've ever, ever, you know, I really learned this teaching games to my daughters growing up. They would always go, where are the girls? 
where are the girl pieces? And then if there was a small selection or no selection, they'd be really disappointed. Pandemic didn't it, it cut across that. It's got a woman on the box cover, you know, and and the roll cards are more um, gender, you know, g- gender neutral. There's more choice. There's more yeah. representativeness in them. Yeah, it's one of the things that the Arkham Horror Living Card Game is a, a cooperative game as well, and it's one of the, it's sort of a, definitely influenced by Arkham Horror and Eldritch Horror later as well. It's a, a game I absolutely love, and one of the things it does extremely well is kind of everybody knows that H.P. Lovecraft was a terrible racist and misogynist and just a very terrible individual, basically. But one of the things the Arkham Horror LCG does is it sort of subverts that quite a lot. There are female characters or male characters there are black characters throughout it there are people of all sorts of different sexualities represented in the investigators you can play which is really really nice to see so people can see themselves in that game there will be an investigator that they can relate to in some way or form which is great and and fantasy flight have done extremely good work on that over the years of sort of subverting that the nature of the original works of lovecraft Let's step back from the sort of impact of the time. We've talked quite a lot about that, but let's talk about the, our own impressions of the game of, of Pandemic. For myself, I've got strong opinions on the presence of quarterbacking in cooperative games. A lot of people say that quarterbacking is a group problem a lot of the time, like a sort of social problem with certain people. And yeah, to an extent it can be, but I think it can be ameliorated by mechanics within games. And Pandemic does very, very little and none, and I don't think any of the later versions, though I haven't played very many of them, do anything to change that fact that if one player really, really knows what they're doing, they have a tendency to take over a little bit and suggest what you should do. I'm doing that in air quotes on a podcast. I've not, not been podcasting for four years at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it at the time, but I never, it never really, like, really excited me. Pandemic. I, d- I didn't find it a very sort of like thrilling game to play. And I moved on to things like like Eldritch Horror, which is a big sort of stupid popcorn movie of a game, which I kind of like. It's not great, but it is, it's got the, it's, it's kind of stupid over the top sort of pulpy action, which I really love. And the Arkham Horror living car game, which I've written extensively about is fantastic. And as far as I'm concerned, the best cop game out there, if very, very expensive to get into as a total caveat. But what about for yourselves, Jens? How, what, how do you still, how do you still see pandemic? Is it still in your collections? Do you still play it? I've never actually owned a copy of Pandemic. As I said, I, I had it on the iPad and then uh, uh, I had and friends, friends who, uh, who had a copy. But I, I really find quarterbacking, which I originally called the alpha, alpha player problem, very problematic in Pandemic and in a lot of co-op games. I think it really, really, it's like a, a huge millstone that hangs, decorated with various albatrosses around the neck of Pandemic. Of, of, cooperative games as a whole um because the thing that i don't get is people you you mentioned this ian this idea that it's a group dynamic it's a group problem just play with a different group it'll all go away but it's not it isn't this isn't like an issue where you get sometimes where players are perhaps cheat or or argue too much in a game or something like that or there's some toxic relationship to the table because the problem with co-op games is that everybody buys in to the quarterbacking because you want to win so why would you not listen to the most experienced player at the table. And why, if you're playing a strategy game, would you disagree if that player lays out a sound and reasoned argument to take a particular strategy? 
I often, way back when Pandemic came out, I used to argue that cooperative games were badly named because they're not cooperative. You don't cooperate. There is no emergent plan here that comes from the group working together at the table. It is generally somebody going, oh, how about we do this? Isn't this a good idea? And everyone goes, oh, yeah. And then they go along for the ride. And while Pandemic has a individual that now I, I've thought a lot about this. I've thought I don't want to go into all the details. Well, I think there are various ingredients that cooperative games need to work. And one of them is uh, individual player agency. And while pandemic kind of has that, it doesn't really because there is nothing that makes an individual player want to play against the group for their own, for their own, the sake of their agency. The agency is illusory to some extent. And you know, it really spoils a lot of cooperative games for me. How about for yourself, Nate? I, you know, I hear people talk about, especially gamers, which is what we all are, you know, there's a certain breed of game that meant a lot to you when you were at a certain point in the hobby. And then you hit a point where you're like, you know, I think I'm done with this and you just never need to play it again. A lot of people say that about Catan and I say that about Pandemic. I... I'm I'm really appreciative for what it did to hobby. I'm I'm much more forgiving of cooperative games than Matt is. And I would and while I would say and again I think this think this is the role player in me because whenever you have a a particularly social situation, there's just a lot of potential for that to degrade some way. So it's always, you know, you can't manage that out. A role-playing game is different from a board game, but you it's hard to manage that social stuff mechanically. And I think that games that do try to manage it don't really do a very good job of it, but there's ways to do it that are more low key. Like in this game, for example, what if you couldn't share information about your hands? You know, that's just, and I don't know, that's maybe just one way to do it. The problem with pandemic and why the, the quarterbacking slash field marshal slash, you know, alpha player problem, there's just not enough uncertainty in this game. There just is not enough uncertainty, especially after you get about four or five moves in. It's obvious what cities are going to be bad. You can, I mean, that doesn't mean you don't have decisions to make, but there's almost always a right choice to say, like, we really ought to deal with this spot right here, because if we deal with this spot over here, obviously we don't need to. The disease isn't a problem there. We know it's, we know it's bad here. It's just, it does not have nearly enough uncertainty in that sense. Dice are great this way. That's what, when I was talking about Defenders of the Realm, which again, I've not played it since like 2010, but that game has dice. Dice are a huge part of that game. Uh, Matt, you were talking about the Fall of Rome version. Dice are a part of that. That uncertainty is really necessary because that does pull back on the quarterbacking problem. You know, you can, it, some, some person can't just step in and say, oh, well, I know what to do. And the thing is, in Pandemic, they very well might know what to do. And if you're the guy who's played the game a whole bunch, you know, I've, I've had this happen in, in games that are competitive where it's, you know, you just want to tell people, you know, just, just, just do this. Like, you're, you're thinking about a choice that's an illusion. Like, this, this happened all the time in Dominion. When Dominion was really hot, I played with me and my wife almost exclusively. If I played with anyone else and had to teach someone, it was excruciating because you're seeing them make really bad choices that, you know, and that's the same thing. I get it. I get why people do that. I, I feel like pandemic would have had better legs for me and it had moved farther if it had either gone one way or the other, if it had gone a little more pulpy, which 
it's not, it's not really the tone it's going for, but just had been a little either dicier or a little more random. You know, Matt, you talked about Red November, which is truly a forgotten game. <laughs> that game had some, had some of that. It had a lot of other problems and it's probably never, it's not going to get reprinted anytime soon. But you know, that was kind of one of the things it was going for. I wanted something a little loosier, more playful or go more complexity where the right the right choice is not obvious or if not complexity then at least make it not obvious what the best move would be i actually think this is something and matt again might disagree but i think this is something that canizia's lord of the rings did really well when i play that with people and i say well should i do this or this they're asking me because i'm the guy who's teaching and i would say i honestly don't know like like this could happen and this could happen and there's i'm sure there's an increased probability of one and not the other but it's not that you know that game has enough variance from turn to turn it's not going to make a difference but pandemic doesn't it's not nearly uncertain enough to take to really work in the long term for me this leans into exactly the, the core problem with cooperative games which is that if you want to presumably most people play a board game because they want some kind of strategic leverage in that game otherwise you might as well just shoot craps right and if you are going to give people that leverage, there has to be a degree of certainty over what you are manipulating in the game. You, you put, there's got to be a machine state, you know, you put an input in, you get a particular output out. And in a competitive game, the variety, the uncertainty is provided by the other players. Right? They are they are that dynamism. They keep everything alive. They do unexpected things. You don't have that in a cooperative game. So you're caught as a designer in this in this between this frying pan of needing some strategic levers and the fire of adding too much uncertainty and it just becomes a, a random bunch. You know, you get the variety, um, but you, you it just becomes a random bunch of, of, of dice rolling. Uh, and it's very, very hard to navigate that. And I don't want to turn this whole thing into a bigger discussion about cooperative games, which we could do, and we should do an episode on Lord of the Rings, probably, I don't know. But um, Pandemic, as an early cooperative game, nobody really had figured out how to get over that. There are lots of methods now. There's lots of ways that more modern cooperative titles try and solve that problem, but it took quite a long time before designers really started experimenting with those. You probably Hanabi is probably the first one that tried to take a different tack. Um and Hanabi might have overcompensated. <laughs> Oh, possibly. I don't. We're, we're, yeah. we're getting into in danger of talking about too many games. And Ian is quite right to try and keep in the straight and narrow. That this should be about pandemic, um, and because I think this is a fascinating design topic, and I will talk all night about it. I won't. I could talk all night about it. <laughs> um, but an, an aspect of this in pandemic that particularly irritates me, and I want to mention this because it's stupid, and I recognise it's stupid, but it's just a really interesting way of illustrating how your perception of something rather than the reality of it really impacts a game. So one of the things that I always disliked about pandemic from the beginning is the fact that you shuffle a deck of cards with, you, with your outbreak cards in them and the random selection of city cards in there, and you stick it on the board, and you're sat there making your first moves, looking at that deck, and I'm sat there looking at the deck and I'm thinking it's quite possible it doesn't matter what we do in this game we're already bust because there are two infection cards too close together in that deck and, yeah. and, and that 
annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> and it, it's ridiculous because statistically, it's no different from me rolling a bunch of dice in Pandemic Fall of Rome and whatever the probability is of getting, I don't know, you know, four, four of the same colour. But because it's actually predestined on the board rather than just tumbling out of your hand when you shake the dice, it feels oppressive in a way to me, in a way that the dice don't. And I, I'm kind of interested by that. But even though I understand it, I can't get beyond it. It still irritates <laughs> me. And, and other games from that era that I like more, like Ghost Stories, I have the same feeling. Ghost Stories is the same. If you have a particularly bad squash of enemy cards at the bottom of that deck, you're stuffed before you ever make a choice in Ghost Stories or a particularly bad arrangement of town tiles. And, and I just, it really, really annoys me. Yeah, Ghost Stories was a terribly brutal game. I, I I remember playing it a few times. I kept playing it wrong. I think it was quite a complicated game to sort of get your head around about how it actually worked. I, I just played it wrong two or three times. But it was just a it was yeah, it was a terribly brutal game. We've sort of touched upon like the fact that the cooperative games have have they've moved on, they've evolved, and they've become they've become quite a staple of the tabletop uh, games that we all now love. For myself in the in the modern era, like the two that I really, really love are Arkham Horror LCG, which I will bang on about for hours and hours at an end. Yeah, you have, one, you have Ian. I have I have already. And, <laughs> and hey, Ian, hey, right. hey Ian, have you played Arkham Horror LCG? No, it's terrible. I'm gonna, no, never play that. <laughs> uh, Spirit Island's the other one, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Spirit Island is good. Yeah. So Arkham Horror LCG, Arkham yeah. Horror solves the core backing problem with randomness because of Chaos Bag, which is a manipulable thing. It's not dice. It's like you pull tokens in order to do tests, and that bag is manipulable. So yes, it's a random pull or roll, but there are things you can do about it. So it's sort of ameliorate. It's a random chance you can ameliorate. So that's how it sort of deals with the sort of excitement factor and not quarterbacking kind of thing. Also, you have your own deck that you have built and bring to. A game so there's less core backing can happen and i think spirit island tackles it through the complexity where uh, nate was talking about everybody's in, in spirit island it's it's often called the anti-colonial game where you yeah. are spirits of uh, native islanders and the white man has come to your island in order to exploit it and you are attempting to push them off the island and each of you is a, a spirit that acts differently on the island. You might be a fire spirit that can destroy things, or a water spirit that pushes around the oceans and rivers, or a rock spirit that throws big rocks about. But every spirit is different and relatively complex. So it's very hard to core back because you kind of need to pay attention to what's going on in your own little board as well, I find. So, so you, you, can't, you can't really spend time core backing because you're spending so much time figuring out what you want to do, let alone anyone else. While I have made my distaste for pandemic era and pandemic style cooperative games pretty clear, um, I must add there are certainly some cooperative games that I that I have come to really enjoy. This, this is not a blanket dislike of, of cooperative. You have to do certain things with it to, to enliven them, to make them work. They're hard to design well, but there certainly are some that I've had a, a great time with, including, I must add, the original, not the, the second edition Arkham Horror. For all, all your complaining about, you know, the complexity in it, justifiably enough, I really like Arkham Horror second edition. Uh, I played it again recently uh, and had a great time you know it, another one we perhaps should cover in a, in, a, in a different podcast episode i think it stands up really well and um, unlike pandemic 
the, have you played the Elder cooperative Horror games. Hey, <laughs> have you played Eldritch Horror at all? The sort of no, no, I haven't. I, I've never played. I've never played uh, Eldritch Horror. I've not played the newer edition of Arkham Horror because it came out as a board game. I have played the Arkham Horror LCG. I do not share your enthusiasm for it, but we will not go there. Fair enough. <laughs> this podcast is uh, over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you say to the editor, Matt. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, your audio just didn't come through in this one. Sorry. Oh yeah, weird. Uh, I I think the the cooperative one thing I was here thinking, what cooperative games have really stuck with me in the long term? And there's really only a couple of answers. I've had a lot of them that I've enjoyed for its season. A good example would be the Dungeons and Dragons adventure series, which yeah. is Castle Ravenloft, Wrath of a Shardalon. Those are really fun games. Um, yeah. yeah, I had a couple of those. Yeah. I, I had three of them, which is two more than anyone needs, <laughs> because <laughs> they're all they're all kind of the same. And I like D and As a matter of fact, I would say that the reason I don't play those much anymore is because I just moved on to plain old fifth edition D and D, and I just that's much more my jam. Uh, but in terms of just a cool cooperative kind of game, that one because you're rolling that D twenty and it's fickle. It it doesn't like you sometimes, and if it just rolls bad, that's another one, Matt. It's really funny, your criticism about the card deck and Pandemic, because that's like three quarters of cooperative games, <laughs> you know, <laughs> have like a, yeah, have like something that's determined at the beginning. Certainly, I, I, I felt that way playing Battlestar Galactica, which is another one we maybe should cover sometime that's not pure cooperative, but the difficulty in that game can just be, can drastically vary just based on how the cards come out, you know? And I think that the D&D Adventure series, those are all, there's like half dozen of them. Take your pick. They're all cool. The other one that I just was thinking of, you know, Matt, you mentioned Hanabi, but the card game I always think of is The Crew. The Crew is a terrific cooperative game. Um, Maybe, maybe the best one I've played. Maybe the best one I've played. And I say that just because... That and Hanabi both put they put binders on how you communicate with each other. Uh, Hanabi does it in a way that I think you're always kind of fighting against the nature of that game. Like you end up coming with conventions about how you're going to do things. But in the crew, it just feels like, you know, you're playing a trick taking game and you're inclined to not even share in a trick taking game. Um, And so you learn how to how to communicate through your card play, which is really cool. That's just good trick-taking. If you've played, you know, spades, hearts, euchre, whatever it is, that's just trick-taking 101, and that's really, really fascinating. So there's... The thing is, I'm even talking about these games now. We wouldn't be thinking about all these games if it weren't for Pandemic, which is the truly remarkable thing. It Like, Pandemic made a genre. It didn't invent the genre, but we don't think of cooperatives as a genre without Pandemic. Maybe it would have happened with another game. Pandemic's the game that did that. Yeah, I think it's really telling, I was going to suppose, that, that we keep repeatedly straying into talking about other cooperative games. And that is just testament to the vast impact that Pandemic had on the hobby, that you cannot now talk about cooperative games without thinking about Pandemic, without comparing the pan- to, to Pandemic. You know, it is just this huge thing um, I've came across the most remarkable stat. Just looking, um, I, I can't, you can't get really reliable figures on this, but just looking roughly at people's release dates, at the release dates of games, about 80%, I think, roughly, of cooperative games that ever released that have come out have come out since pandemic. Yeah. So, That's you know, it is, it, is, it is that vast that it's 
cut like four fifths of cooperative games have have just been out in the last fifteen years because pandemic made it into this enormous exciting thing that people wanted to emulate that people wanted to get on board with and that's massive it's also telling that all of those other games we've talked about those aren't available in your local department store there's there's something that you know we're we're talking as people who are all one one form or another of seasoned gamers and we're the ones who've we've we've had the ability to move on from pandemic but also it's it could very well be that pandemic's just not the kind of game you're meant to play 50 times you know, <laughs> and some, and that's okay. And I think the way most people play games by most people, I mean, general populace, most people play games. Yeah. We play it once every couple of months. It's cool. We only buy maybe we have maybe four or five games and pandemic is like, it's in that rarefied, uh, status of being one of those games. So it's, it, it still hasn't really been um, it's been surpassed in a lot of ways in terms of design, in my opinion, but it still, it still has kind of held on there as, as just that kind of game. It's the, it's the cooperative game people will, will find and play at the department store still. Yeah, I just realized we hadn't even mentioned Gloomhaven, which is obviously a big cooperative game for <laughs> the last sort of five years. I yeah. mean, probably wouldn't exist without pandemic being a thing. Yeah. What Haven? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Gloom what? <laughs> we're, we're coming to the sort of end of our hour and it's one of the things that we want to do on this cast is talk about games that are influential even if we personally don't really play them much anymore or even particularly like them at the time or since it doesn't really matter these games are still hugely influential things like Pandemic you can still get everywhere in various versions you can still get it in well, in the UK, in your local Warstons, in the States, I'd imagine you can get in Target or wherever your local sort of Mega Mart is. And yeah, th- this game is incredibly influential. Like Nate said, it basically started an entire subgenre of tabletop games, which still exists today. And we still see cooperative games coming out all the time. Maybe not as quite as much as we used to, but they're still there. They're still a big part of tabletop gaming. And a lot of people really like those cooperative games. They prefer working together against... The- against the game rather than working against each other and that's great that's gr- fantastic that those games exist for people to to engage with the hobby in that way i love that that exists fantastic i don't want to play all of them but i love that other people do thanks very much for listening editing for the cast was done by me ian McAllister. the music for the cast was provided by my brother-in-law david Dolliver with my friend alistair mcleod our logo was created by rachel wines thrower if you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is by telling your friends about us and leave us a review and rating on your podcast host of choice. You'll also find the cast on thecultoftheold.com, where you can find writing about older games. You can follow the hosts on Twitter. I'm at the Giant Brain. Matt is at Matt Thra, that's M-A-T-T-T-H-R. Nate is at Sanaldefanso, that's S-A-N-I-L-D-E-F-A-N-S-O. You can come and chat to the team and fellow game enthusiasts on our Discord, and there'll be an invite to that in the show notes. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so through our Ko-Fi, and I'll put a link to that as well. You can send the cast an email about any of the games we've covered, should cover, or anything else really, at cultoftheolduk at gmail.com. Bye for now.